All right, would you open your Bibles with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. And uh, I actually met a couple new families before the service. And uh, if this is your first time to the Village Church, this is the best Sunday to be here, uh, I'm going to be honest. Some of you are a little nervous, and I invite your nervousness. That's fine. And uh, so uh, long story short, we're in a book on Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon is a love poem. It's a series of, it's a song that has a series of verses and poems that tell the love story of King Solomon and likely his first bride. We don't have her name. Um, She's called one time the Shulamite, which probably references where she's from. And so the story starts in chapter one with this couple who are dating um, or betrayed to each other and they are in love and the the romance cultivates and develops to the point where they are betrothed and they're waiting to be married and then last week we actually got to um, preach on their wedding day and uh, their wedding day was this beautiful day where um, the king or any Jewish groom at the time would go from his house with some kind of entourage and they would go to the bride's house they would pick her up um, and then they would take her her back to his house or wherever the party was going to be they would covenant with each other and they would party for a week. It was this awesome wedding ceremony. It was lovely. It was fun. It was a blast. And so last week we just talked about the wedding, but here's the interesting thing about a Jewish wedding is that what would happen is the actual um, consummation of the marriage um, did not happen in like English or American weddings, not English, American weddings, where like we don't think about it, talk about it, the couple parties, and then they go off and we wonder what happens, right? In the middle of their wedding ceremony, the couple would consummate their marriage and make their consummation publicly known. It's a very different time. It's a very different scenario. So technically, actually, um, we call this sometimes the wedding night, but this is actually in the middle, what takes place today, in the middle of their wedding. So my goal is to make you as uncomfortable as humanly possible. I'm kidding. That's, that is not my goal. But one of the things that has been very intriguing for me has been um, hearing um, different responses in community groups to the questions, because we've been dealing with issues of sexuality and romance and attraction and desire and dating. And and, uh, one of the interesting pieces of feedback, just culturally speaking, is that oftentimes the older a group is, the more reserved they are to speak about these issues. And the younger a group is, the more, we'll just say, completely open and unashamed and unabashed they are to discuss these things. And even even in the American cultural Christian context, um, we might be one church, but there are many, many different generations and cultures represented. And so I do understand that for some of you, this is like no big deal. And for some of you, this is going to be challenging. Um, But you know what? God's word reveals his heart. And last time I checked, um, the word of God is profitable, all scripture. Now you can say amen. Amen. So we want to be faithful to that. I want to tell you a story. Um, just FYI, it's not a true story. Um, but it's a story that I think really helps make the point. So there was a missionary, and uh, his goal was to bring the gospel to a foreign land. And he finds this tribe, and this tribe um, lived on a river. And he showed up, and it was the custom of this tribe, if they had a visitor, to throw um, an enormous feast. And so he's welcomed by this tribe, and they're eating, and there's fire, and it's, it's just lovely. It's just this great party. Everyone is laughing and telling stories. And, and um, all of a sudden, a crocodile 
comes out of the river and chops off the arm of one of their children. And the crocodile runs back into the river and there's a panic and there's chaos and the mom and dad take the kid to the best medical help that they can get. Within a couple of minutes, everything just kind of goes back to normal and it's like nothing had ever happened. And so the missionary looks and says, um, are, are, we gonna, are we gonna talk about what just happened? Because that was straight up weird. And nobody says anything. They quickly change the subject and they go on and they're partying and they're laughing and they're talking about things. And, and as the missionary looks around, he starts seeing that people are missing limbs and there's scars and they're missing ears. And he sees that whatever this crocodile thing is, it's taking a pretty heavy toll on the people. So he chimes, on, chimes up again and he says, I'm sorry, can we just take a minute? Um, a crocodile just jumped out of the water and bit the arm off one of your kids. And one of the leaders of the tribe looks at him and says, we don't talk about crocodiles here. Um, that's not what we do. That's not appropriate. And then the conversation's over and the party goes on. That is exactly what it is like in the American evangelical church around the issue of sexuality. It has been shunned. It has not been a part of our public conversation. And the toll on the upcoming generations is massive. It is absolutely massive. And so one of my pleas in this entire sermon series is that we would not fall prey to the lies of the devil and leave the sexual development of our children's ethics and morality and practice on sexuality to pornography, movies, TV, and the public school system or their friends. But that as a church, we would rise up and be the church and we would train and develop with a compelling, biblical, life-giving sexual ethic and then we would model that in our lives to show the next generation that you don't need to be a lemming and a clone of the system's way that ultimately destroys them and sends them over the cliff to their death. But we can do something better. We can breathe life into this part of you that honestly is made by God and it is good and it can be so powerful. As a church, we want to do something different. Um, I, want you, I just want you to hear this in 20 years if you can raise a semi-normal kid with a we'll just say moderately biblical sexual ethic he will be the absolute rarity absolute rarity given the direction uh, I mean just imagine this two years ago I preached a sermon on gender dysphoria and many of you came to me and said I've never heard of that why is that important that will never happen here this is not a big deal and within one year it overtook our schools and now you see what's happening in U46 FYI that sermon was two years ago and 90% of you had never even heard those words put together and now it is in the common vernacular of what we're wrestling through regularly I'm telling you that the pace at which culture is accelerating is beyond anything we could have ever imagined and there is no greater more important time for the church to be the church and to speak boldly lovingly clearly compellingly non-judgmentally in a life-giving way that compels the next generation to something better now I want to share with you a rubric because I think for many of you here there's a resident unhealthiness when it comes to your view of sexuality which is why your practice of discussing and thinking about it is probably not the most helpful for you, your spouse, your kids, or anybody that God gives you the privilege to mentor. Um, so there are three views of sex that I, I really appreciated this rubric, and um, two of them are errant, and one we would say is biblical. And I'll ask you the question, how do you view sexuality? Uh, number one, do you view it as God? Now, of course, you're smart. You realize that sexuality is not a sentient, conscious being that creates the world, right? But many people 
obsess over sexuality and sex as if it was the most important thing in their life. It is the first thought that they wake up with. It's the last thought they go to bed with. And throughout the day, whether it's pornography or a woman or lusting over people's bodies or lusting over affection and love from some man, this issue of desperation or lust propels, honestly, so many human beings to take this good, God-given gift of sexuality and it becomes the chief end and goal of their life. I think this is an accident. This is actually the history of, we'll just say, humanity. Um, Most civilizations have landed in either hedonism, giving themselves over to pleasure, um, or asceticism, removing or just saying, we don't want any pleasure. Pleasure is bad. Pleasure is, is sinful. And uh, we just happen to be in a culture and a time and place where sex is God. Your desires are your identity, and your identity uh, is who you want to have sex with. And that puts sexuality and desires on the level of God. God determines your identity. Your identity is not in your sexuality, period. Number two, do you view sexuality as gross? Um, This is the history of the Christian church for 2,000 years. The dominant perspective of sexuality is that it's gross. It is to be avoided. It is not to be discussed. And so generations grow up, and because mom and dad cannot address it or speak about it, it is seen as a shameful, gross thing to stay away from. Um, It's not comfortable. Now, we go all the way back. We're not going to draw a clear line to church history because it would take us forever. Um, But you go back to the Middle Ages, and priests were told, you can't be married. Why? It came fundamentally out of a view that said sex was gross and only necessary for reproduction. Um, A significant portion of the early church believed that sex was a result of the fall. Um, One church father even believed that uh, Eve would get pregnant by eating a fruit of a tree, right? The the, the extent that people would go to to resist um, sexuality as a God-given gift were were pretty rampant. A number of Christians in the first few centuries of the church would make themselves eunuchs so they didn't have to face the reality of their sexual desires and what God was doing. This is a huge shift in part of the culture. You go to um, the Puritans and you go to the post-Reformation and this uh, hyper-emphasis on modesty, which modesty is good, don't get me wrong, but to the points where they took it became very, very, we'll say, harmful to generations of people. You get down to the last 15, 60 years and the sexual revolution has responded and now they have taken the primary seat of influencing culture and our young people's sexual views, ethics, and morals. And the church is finally realizing, I think for the first time in history, that we can't forsake the subject anymore. We actually have to be direct and clear about what God wants for it. Uh, I want to be really clear about one aspect under this category because, um, so as a pastor, and many of you just living, you have been able to sit down with people and you are well aware of how rampant sexual abuse is whether you've been on the receiving end of verbal abuse, emotional sexual abuse, um, and that there's something that happens inside of the soul that when somebody uses a good thing in a gross way, it makes you look at that thing as gross. And uh, I wanna be really clear, I do not pretend for one moment that for anybody, which there's gonna be a significant number of you who've been on the receiving end of that, um, I do not have any, we'll say misnomer in my brain that this is gonna heal something. If anything, my goal is to open up God's word and show you his vision of what sexuality in the context of marriage looks like. And may God, by his spirit, begin to move you down a slow, intentional, 
long process of real healing. So I just want you to know, um, I don't, it has not passed me the number of people who are experiencing immeasurable pain on this subject. Uh, but there's a, a third category here, and I think this is the most important, is that do you see your sexuality, the um, gift of sex as from God, as good, and to be used for his glory? And this is the fundamental understanding of sexuality that every Christian has to believe to their core if you're going to make an impact to the next generation. Because if you don't believe it, you won't practice it. And if you don't practice it, people will see through this. And so what I want, my dream is that we would raise up a generation of grandparents and parents and mentors who have healthy views on this issue, practice those views in their head, their heart, and their bodies, and raise up another generation who does not have to suffer under the negligence of what many of you had to grow up under. So let's get to this context. We've seen already that Solomon is, is, uh, has married his bride. And uh, what we saw last week was that the wedding was um, there to show you the quality of Solomon's character. In America, um, our weddings largely revolve around the dreams of the bride and Jewish culture. The weddings were largely about revealing the character of a man. Um, was he ready to lead, provide, and protect the heart and the body of a woman? And if he was, then... Con- then covenant would happen. And a man and a woman were not allowed to consummate unless the covenant was already hap- would happen. And the covenant was there to basically um, show forth a man who is ready to, ready to lead, provide, and, and protect. And also, this uh, wedding ceremony that we saw last week, it's only a couple verses long, um, but it's there to let you know, to have a line of demarcation in this book, that the couple did not consummate their marriage until after they made a covenant. Um, there have been a lot of interesting interpretations of Song of Solomon, as we've shared with you some of those. Um, and there is a, a semi-popular understanding of Song of Solomon, um, that there is no flow to the book, there is no narrative, it's just um, about a married couple from beginning to end. And And uh, I think a little bit of in-depth study will show you that clearly this book is following this couple from a a point of dating, engagement, um, betrothal, if you will, to their wedding day. And now we get to their wedding night. And I want you to open up um, in your Bibles again. We are in uh, Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, if you look in your notes, point number one says this, seeing doed through the eyes of a godly husband. That is not a spelling error. If you're new with us, you're like, what is dode? Um, the more you say the word, the dumber it sounds. Uh, I'd like to bring you quickly into this Hebrew concept of dode. Um, there are three words for love. The first is raya, which is friendship love. The second is ahava, which is soul love, a deep connection between two people, often a man or a woman. Um, this is the kind of love that builds a marriage. You cannot build a marriage on sex. You build a marriage on uh, And dod is the Hebrew word for sexual love. Now, as we get to chapter 4, verse 1, the man is going to start talking. And what I want you to do in this text is I want you to watch um, this experience through the eyes of the husband. Now, let me be clear with you. Um, They are on their wedding night, if you will. This is their first encounter making love. And on the one hand, you would think, why would God ever include this in the Bible? But I love how the poetry is clear, but respectful and discreet. 
Um, I think God was a genius to not just tell the story of their wedding night, but to put it in poetic song. So we get to chapter four, verse one. Um, They've just been married. They've entered into his chambers. And he says to her, behold, you are beautiful. My love, behold, you are beautiful. Now the word for beautiful is literally fair. I want you to hearken back in the book, and she regularly would say something like, I am dark, but lovely. Now, the, the, the ancient notions of beauty for the Jewish people were basically this. Beautiful woman was fair, soft, was not exposed to the elements, light-skinned, if you will, not dark and tanned, and this is the Jewish notion of it. And what happened to this bride is that her brothers were angry with her and they punished her by putting her out in the fields. And so this girl would have been the opposite of what they considered attractive. She was dark, she was probably muscular, she was probably not as soft because she was working out in the fields. And so on one level, this girl has already expressed her deep insecurity. And all around Solomon are what I call the supermodels of the day, the TMZ girls, these daughters of of Jerusalem, and they're beautiful and they're soft and they're lazy and they don't do anything and they just sit there and their entire life is about looking beautiful. And so she has often dealt with this insecurity. In fact, one time in in the song, she's before them. She says, basically, stop looking at me and my dark skin. Here's why I look like this. I may not be as beautiful as you, um, but doggone it, I am dark, but I am lovely, okay? And throughout this book, she's expressing her regular insecurities about her body. And he looks at her and he says, you are fair, which is the highest compliment of beauty that you could give to this woman. He goes on, he says, your eyes are doves behind your veil. Uh, Some um, historians and commentators believe that Solomon never actually saw her face until the wedding night. In some cultures, this was true. Um, There was a point, I think it was in chapter two, where Solomon says, show me your face. And some people have thought he had never seen it. We don't know. What we do know is they had a, a number of intimate conversations that I'm having a hard time figuring out how they had them behind a veil, so for what it's worth. But this is her wedding night, and there is a veil, and he sees her eyes, and he says, you, your eyes are doves. He says, your hair, your hair is like a flock of goats <laughs> leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Anybody? I mean, I think this is sweet. Um, <laughs> the flock of goats, um, very simply, they were black, dark brown, curly. But there's actually something really, we'll just say meaningful happening here. Um, What he's doing is he's starting from her head to her toes. And he's gonna make a very clear point. There is no part of your body that I do not love or appreciate. Um, I think you are beautiful. And so what he does is he seemingly lets down her hair, and this is the illustration that her hair is being let down, um, which is a fairly erotic point of this because Jewish women would keep their hair up. And so this is a moment of vulnerability. This is a moment of intimacy. And so you're very clear if you understand what's going on, you're being brought into a very special moment with this couple. And so he says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Number two, your teeth 
are like a flock of shorn ewes <laughs> that have come up from washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Let me just break it down. You got all your teeth, right? right? So we ain't in Kentucky no more, okay? You got all your teeth. They're straight, right? And they're clean. Like, apparently, this is rare. Um, and so she had good hygiene going for her. But, I mean, imagine, right? I mean, it's weird poetry, but a dude, ladies, the dude looks at you, and with all sincerity, like, just with the purest of intentions looks at you and says, your smile is mesmerizing. And you'd be like, huh, kind of is, isn't it? <laughs> I kind of am awesome, aren't I? And so what he's doing is he's single-handedly dismantling all insecurities that she could possibly have. Verse three, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a, a pomegranate behind your veil. What color is the inside of a pomegranate? Red. And what he's saying is, you're blushing. So she's receiving all of these compliments, and she's turning bright red to the point where he's like, your veil is on, and I, like, if this is making you blush, imagine what it's doing for her in this moment. And one of my favorite lines in verse four is, your neck is like the tower of David, built in rows of stone, on and hang, thousands on hang a thousand shields, and all of them shields of warriors. The tower of David, it's called the uh, Jerusalem Citadel. It's a mil military fortress, very dignified. And here's what he's saying. You are strong, you are dignified, and you are well protected because I'm your leader. And he looks at her, and what you see in this woman is not a posture of embarrassment or shame, or fear on her wedding night, but comfort, dignity, protection. And he's describing most likely what is probably some very ornate necklace, and he takes the necklace off and he continues to move down. In verse five he says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. One of the things you gotta understand about what's happening in chapter four in this moment is that almost all the major imagery of chapters one through three, um, where they've been restraining themselves, gets brought back into the story. And so we find here this issue of fawns or does or a gazelle. And uh, if you remember the bride, three times in the book, two to date, she gets the daughters, the virgins of Jerusalem around her, and here's what she says. I adjure you, I plead with you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the field by the does of the field that you not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. And so the imagery here is that if you're gonna catch a doe or gazelle, um, these prized animals, you have to be stealthy. You have to be intentional. Like if you go up to a deer and you're like, ah, and you start running after the deer, are you gonna catch it? The answer is no. And so she looks at them and here's what she says. Don't awaken love until it pleases. Um, the love she's talking about there is not doed, but ahava. And the bride looks at all the women, because ladies, you're gonna get this, that that thing that you want more than anything else is not doed by and large. For the majority of women I've ever met, what they want is ahava. What they want is to have a soul connection, to be cherished, to be loyally loved until the day they die. And the bride looks at them and says, look, if you want ahava, um, you cannot arouse or awaken this sexual thing too soon. Because if you do, it will run away. Because if you build a relationship on Dode, it will fail. You build a relationship on Ahava and it will succeed. And Dode becomes uh, the blessing or the gift of a relationship built on Ahava or this loyal, lifetime, uh, soul-connected kind of love. 
And so he brings back this imagery, and now he's basically saying, you know that thing that has been so hard to get? He now has it. And her breast symbolizes sexuality, and, and they waited, and now they finally have access to this. In Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon writes this. Let your fountain, this is describing your sexuality, be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. What's interesting, he's not talking in Proverbs to the newly married man. He's talking to the man who's clearly been married for long enough that they're no longer in their youth. And he looks at her and he looks at him and says, your wife's love should not cease to intoxicate you. You should rejoice in her. And then he goes on and says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And so what you see for Solomon in this moment, in this, in this uh, wedding night, is that he's having this initial joy of finding his wife for the first time. But then Solomon, later on in life, you know why I think he writes Proverbs like this? Because he's a moron. Because the dude abandoned the monogamy of a beautiful, lovely, God-fearing woman for how many? Uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines? And I think he writes much of Proverbs in the aftermath of dealing with that many wives and that many women. And he says, delight yourself in the wife of your youth. Let me tell you this. Let her breast satisfy you. Don't run around. Be faithful. Because I can tell you what happens when you start finding joy and satisfaction in anyone else. It's not the way God wired it. And then in verse six, we have another phrase that has already been said earlier in the book. It says, he says this, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. In chapter two, they were expressing their desire for one another. And she looks at him and she says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, leave, get out of here and go to the mountains of Bether, the mountains of separation. If you stay, I'm going to give my body to you. And so I think it was in chapter 2, he ends up leaving and going and honoring her request, not pressuring her um, in any way, shape, or form. And then finally, he takes her very phrase and says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. By the way, is that day or night? Say nighttime. Nighttime, good. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh, into the hill of frankincense. So rather than leaving, he's taking her own words and he's saying, you've told me to leave, but now I'm going to come to this mountain of myrrh and hill of frankincense. Again, erotic terms, but verse seven, he looks at her and he's examined her body and he says, you are altogether fair, my love. There is no flaw in you. So let's just ask a question. First and foremost, is that true, culturally? Is there a flaw in her? Yeah, she's dark. Like, culturally, that, that's an issue. That's, that is, uh, that's a negative statement on beauty, okay? But does Solomon believe what he just said to the very core of his being? You better believe it. This woman has captured his heart. Uh, this is just a little tidbit. If you give a guy your body, he won't appreciate your heart. God has wired this thing so that when a woman withholds sex, the gift of her body until marriage, it makes a man love and appreciate her heart. When a man gets sex before covenant, he uses the woman. That's just the rhythm and the nature of sin inside of a man. 
But I love this, big picture, a godly husband will continually erase bodily insecurities in his presence. Verse eight, come with me my, from Lebanon, which is where she's from, my bride. You're gonna start to notice this phrase, these two words, my bride, my bride, my bride, has not come up in the book yet. Do you know why? Because the book wants you to know something has shifted with the wedding. Now they are married. Now they're gonna have a sexual relationship. Before this phrase comes up, um, there was no consummation. Why? Because God wants you to know that this couple, though they had strong desires, waited until they were married to consummate their marriage. He looks at her and says, come with me from Lebanon, depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. He's basically saying the world is a dangerous place. And if you will come with me, and you will be my bride in the shadow of my protection and my love, you will never be threatened again. That his love is a place of safety, and out there is a place of danger, but in here, you're under my leadership and you're protected. One of the things I love is that even though technically, legally, in this culture at this time, she was his property, he does not treat her like property, he invites her. He treats her like a dignified woman. Verse nine, he looks at her and says, "You." have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. This is not some weird thing going on, by the way, with sister, let me be clear, they're not related. It's, it's a cultural idiom, it's a way of saying, um, you're my sister, I'm a protector over you, I've been given responsibility. Um, it's a, it's a, a, a term of endearment and affection, just to be clear. But he says, you have captivated, captivated my heart, my sister, my, what's the word? Bride, right, the, over and over again, you're gonna start hearing this. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. I'll just say this, a man has a profound ability to be obsessed with one woman. Profound ability to be obsessed with, with one woman. A sexually responsive man, woman and a woman who respects her husband will get the obsession of her husband. Like when you find a man who is obsessed with his wife, she respects him and is responsive. And this is part of the way God has wired men to be. It's a powerful thing. And we could say the inverse, an emotionally responsive man will consume a woman's thoughts. A man who speaks tenderly and kindly to the soul of a woman will make her obsess over this man. This is a good thing. And they both honor and appreciate the way that God has made each of them. I wanna give you a couple so what's before we go on. Uh, number one, godly husbands are visual. Let me just say this, men are visual, right? Don't give me an amen because you already know this, okay? Um, but this is really important because what you're seeing through this whole text is that everything that he's responding to are the things that, she, he, is, that, that he is seeing. She responds to the things he says, he responds to the things he sees. Do you see the difference? And this is fundamental and this could be used for great good or great evil. Every, every woman in the world needs to understand this about a dude, that we are created to respond sexually by what we see. And in the same way that you respond emotionally by the way a man kindly and with tenderness treats you and honors you and respects you, men respond very differently by and large. I know it's not always 100% for everybody, but by and large, men are ex exponentially more visual um, than women. And the power of man's sight needs to be honored before marriage and appreciated in marriage. He is not a pervert because he loves her body. He is not using her because he loves her body. He's actually wired and created by God to be obsessed with her body, to love her body, and to enjoy it. 
Number two, godly husbands are verbal inside and outside the bedroom, okay? Uh, Lest you think he only says nice things to make love to her, um, this whole book has been filled with his verbal affection, right? And what this does is it should show any man, if you just read chapter four and you think like right before you're gonna make love to your wife, you're gonna say some nice words, but your relationship is void of kindness outside of that, how's that gonna go for you? Ladies, it's not gonna go well, is it? Don't say anything, but you already know the answer. I think my favorite part of this, though, is that godly husbands are patient. Even just the way the text is written and the, and the poetic pauses, it forces you to stop and savor every word. The imagery that's used, it doesn't really permit you to just like fly through this. And the man is intentional every step of the way. But you see this even before their wedding. Everything he does was patient and intentional. And this is what a godly man does. A godly man does not rush and put dode in front of Ahava. A godly man builds Ahava, covenants with a woman, and out of that covenant, then a woman can give her body as a gift to a man. But this is the way God has wired it, because when a man gets dode without Ahava, he uses the woman. It's a powerful thing, and I love this, that God has made this man to be patient, and to be visual, and to pursue her with kindness, and the response is she receives it. Number two, enjoying dote is a gift from a gracious God. He looks at her and he says, verse 10, how beautiful is your love, your dote, my sister, my bride. How much better is your dote than wine? Uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the wife, the woman starts out, she's dating, betrothed, they're not married. She says this in chapter 1, verse 2. It's like the very beginning of the book, the first words that are said um, by anybody, and she says, your dode is better than wine. And what she's saying to him in this point is, um, I want you more than I even want wine. And he takes these words, these phrases, these things that were said when they were dating and engaged, and now in the context of the marital bedroom, he looks at her and he says, how much better is your dode than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Clearly she smells good. Verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. This is not a peck on the cheek, just so you know. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And then verse 12, um, I really think this is, this is one of the most important um, verses in this section here. It's very meaningful. He looks at her and he says this, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. So a garden is a place of beauty, life, mesmerizing, safe, peaceful, and he looks at her and he says, up until this point, you have been locked off from me. You have been strong. You've been a woman of integrity. You have not just given your dough to me because you're some desperate woman. We've developed ahava. You required a covenant of me, and as a response, you've given yourself to me. But up until this point, you have been locked. You have been a garden. You have been a fountain that is, is sealed. And I think this is really a valuable moment to stop and just speak to ladies for a moment because whether it is culture, whether it is your ex-boyfriend, whether it's a terrible mom or dad, whether it is an ex-husband or an ex-fiance, whether it is just some idiot that you know, culture and people will lie to you and tell you that it's just sex and that your body is just a body. 
And God intervenes, and I believe he would look at every woman and say, your body is precious, and it is your gift to give to the man who will covenant himself to you for life. And every time you mix this order up, if you give dode and you just see your body as a means to, go, to getting some kind of affection, it will mess your soul up. That this is not the way God has wired this to work. And so I can look at every woman in this room and say, your body is your gift from God to give to another man in the context of marriage. If a man wants your body, he better build ahava with you and covenant himself to you for the rest of his life because that is how absolutely meaningful, valuable, and precious the gift of your sexuality is. Unfortunately, so many people have just told you your sexuality is no big deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's just sex. It's just that. Who cares? If it, just, if it feels good, it doesn't matter. And yet the biblical worldview comes in and says it is not just a body. It is a gift. It is from God. It is to be protected. It is to be stewarded. And when you take it outside of its context, it inevitably does damage. Verse 13, your shoots, talking about her garden that was previously closed are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron. Nard is the ugliest word, isn't it? Nard. Ugh. It's like dode, nard. Anyways. Calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense and myrrh and aloes with all choice spices. A garden, hear, hear this, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. What has happened? That well, which was closed, is now open. That fountain, which was not functioning, is now working. And so what he's trying to tell you is that um, she is finally open to him because he covenanted with her, because he built Ahava with her. In verse 16, she responds, and she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, and blow upon my garden, and let its spices flow. Do you remember the word awake? Awake goes back um, to when she looks at the daughters of Jerusalem and says, do not awaken love until it pleases. And this is the point where they're taking this vocabulary from earlier in the book, and it's making this moment mean so much more. That this moment is the culmination of their patience and their waiting, and she says, yes, this is good. And then she goes on and says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now, um, could you show the picture of the Shulamite woman? I love this picture. This is um, a picture that uh, somebody drew, if they were going to take um, it literally, of what this woman would look like. Um, do you have that? Yeah. <laughs> I love that her breasts are little doughs. That's cute. Like the Tower of David. Uh, you see all the goats in her hair? <laughs> That's so good. I could just look at that for days. All right. <laughs> we get to the end of this in chapter four. And uh, chapter five, something weird happens. And it's hard to get your head kind of around what's happening in chapter five, verse one. Um, and, and so I'll read it to you. And I'm going to help you try to understand what I think might be happening here. Um, here's what he says. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. So who's, who's talking? Solomon, good, the husband, yeah. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. And again, I ate my honey with my honey. I, that's what I think of it like. <laughs> I drank my wine with my, with my milk. So clearly here's what he's saying, right? They've just made love. They've just consummated this relationship. And here's the question. Who is he talking to? 
And, and so different interpretations have come up here, but I'll, I'll tell you one. One is, uh, they're in the wedding chamber, and what's going on outside of the wedding chamber, by the way? It's a party. So some have said, he opens up the curtain, right? And he's like, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. Isn't this funny? Like, this is a plausible understanding of this passage. Like, we would never do this in an American wedding, ever. Like, imagine going to the reception and there's like this little place. Anyways, uh, he opens it up, right? And, uh, but here's, here, here's the point, right? The point is, they're both satisfied. They did this to the glory of God. And none of this is weird, awkward, or shameful. This is to be celebrated. This is fine. But then the next phrase has left commentators stunned and shocked and surprised. And what is going on? Someone, we don't know who, says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Here are the options. Option number one. Um, because this is a song, um, maybe it was the chorus, right? The chorus comes in, and then um, you have the dude, he's singing his song, the girl's singing her song, they're going back and forth, and the chorus comes in and says, eat, friends, drink, whatever. But the weird thing is, the chorus is in the bedroom. Maybe it's the daughters of Jerusalem, but then why are they in the bedroom? Okay, that's weird. Option number two, um, Solomon, right? Um, opens up the curtain in front of everybody, and he says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love, right? Maybe he did that. Um, my personal like, view on this is I lean heavily toward a third option. So God never shows up in this book. Like he's never explicitly referenced. It's one of the reasons that many Jews had issues with the legitimacy of this book being scripture. Like Esther, you don't see God's name come up or he's not doing a lot. But many commentators have stopped and said, this is the God voice who they're in the wedding chamber and God just chimes in and he sanctions and sanctifies and declares that what has happened has been good. And whether or not it's God or Solomon or a chorus, no matter how you slice it, the point is still the same. That what happened on this wedding night is celebrated and affirmed by God. And it's as if God came in and said, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Enjoy what I have given to you. A couple closing, so what? Sex is always in the presence of God. That this is not something that God's like, oh, they're gonna go make love. I gotta just close my eyes and go in the other room, right? That's, um, he's not a voyeur. He is holy and righteous. And there is never a moment where God is not involved in what's happening, aware and present. And this is a good thing. And one of the things I think that is just so weird is that it forces the Christian who may have grown, grown up in an ascetic background, maybe they've grown up in a world that's like, saw sex as gross. Now you have to take that perspective and reconcile it with this. And maybe God has a much holier, purer perspective on this than we do who either see it as God or see it as gross but it's always in the presence of God. Number two, sex is a joyful act of worship to God. Now, I know everything is an act of worship, but some people in their brains, they take this out of it, that how you care for and love your wife or your husband, how you handle your sexuality before marriage, when you're young, when you're older, when you're single, divorced, widowed, or married, or whatever, how you handle this, you do this to the glory of God, and this couple understands that what is happening is this is an act of worship that God is pleased by. Number three, I'm going to say this, but I need to explain it in case there's some misunderstanding. 
Sex is always private, right? We agree on that one? Good. But it's not hidden. It, healthy couples, healthy marriages, this is a part of their life unless there's a physical disability or an ongoing reason um, that is legit. But for most healthy couples, this is a regular part of their life. This is what married couples do. This is, we've talked about this, sexuality is the fundamental difference between friendship and marriage. I promise to not have sex with anybody else and then I consummate by having sex with you. Like this relationship is so central to what it means to be married, but I want you to hear me that um, it has become so faux pas, so don't touch this, so uh, scared in the Christian circles to discuss it that we have this private thing that goes on, right? But we never talk about it with our kids. We don't talk about it in church. We don't train up people. And then the rampant sexual brokenness all around us is not able to be healed and redeemed and addressed with the word of God because culturally as evangelicals, we don't like talking about it. And this is why I say it is always private, but it is not hidden. And this is one of these areas where the church has to learn to have a vocabulary about this and to see it as good and a gift from God. Because if you don't talk about it with your kids or when they bring it up, you're like, ah, oh, we don't talk about that here. They will see it as gross, as shameful, and something that is to be kept secret. And what we want to come in, and we want to enter in and say, no, we want to develop a generation that sees this as God's gift, that respects it as the powerful gift that it really is, and uses their sexuality and their desires to the glory of God under the authority of his word. Finally, number four and last, sex like marriage is temporary, and it points to something greater. I know this is probably the worst news some of you have heard. Um, there will not be sex in heaven. There will not be marriage in heaven. And some of you are like, no. Like some of you are like, Jesus, don't come back, right? Until I can get married. And I get it, right? I, I understand that, right? Because we have deified sexuality and the sexual experience to a point where whatever God might have to offer us is seen as less joyful or pleasurable. And so I've been asked often, why did God make this, right? And uh, I think the most clear, helpful, theological, biblical answer is very simple that God created the most powerful human force, sexuality, to draw us to another person in marriage as an arrow. And the joy and the pleasure that sexuality brings, the life that it brings in the context of marriage, is a micro picture, it is a shadow of a greater pleasure that is waiting every single follower of God. So here's, here's, the, here's the misnomer, here's the lie. There is nothing better than sex. Or what could God possibly offer me in heaven if I don't have my wife married to her in that way and we don't have our sexual relationship? And here's what the psalmist would say. At his right hand are what forevermore? Pleasures forevermore. Isn't that crazy? That when the Bible speaks of the presence of God, all earthly pleasures are temporary and trite compared to the pleasure of being in the presence of God. And hear me, not one ounce of those pleasures are erotic. That there is something more satisfying than sex. And that there is something that will satisfy deep longings of our soul in the presence of God so that if you could be with him, no earthly pleasure would even begin to compare. Isn't that crazy? I don't know what that's gonna be like, but here's what I do know. Not one single human being 
who stands in the presence of God will say, darn, I'm glad, I'm so sad I didn't get married. I didn't get a chance to have sex. And so we, we remember that every pleasure and every joy and all of these experiences that we have are here to point us to the ultimate greatest pleasure that is at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. And so I can look at you and I can say, between that point and this point, um, our job is not to see sex as God or gross, but a gift and to honor it and to respect it. And I want to be very clear about my intentions with this whole sermon series to rein up, raise up and train the next generation to not be as wounded and broken and avoid this subject like is what happened with us. We need to be able to do a better job with this because this is real and I'm telling you, the culture is winning with our kids and we cannot avoid this any longer. And I want my kids to grow up. I want to look at them. I want them to honor what God has put inside of them. I want them to use their bodies to the glory of God I want to help them avoid the pain that so much of us have had to go through in this room and the brokenness. And I want to see them raise up another generation after them that brings glory to God and is a bright, shining light in a dark world. So I want to take a moment. I want to pray. And uh, I'm just so grateful that God is clear, aren't you? Is there like any subject he doesn't address in one way or another? It's amazing. Let's pray together. Father, as we get ready to celebrate communion, I'm reminded of... Again, all of the brokenness in this church, which is just such a small picture of what's happening in this world. Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who forgives sins, cleanses the unrighteous, purifies the defiled, heals the broken. God, we are all of the above. And Lord, on the cross, you've taken care of our sin and you've given us confident hope of a better future, a new heaven and a new earth that far exceeds all notions of joy and pleasure and glory that we can possibly understand. But God, between that day and this, would you do what only you can do? Would you enter into the hearts of us broken people and bring beautiful, Christ-exalting redemption? Would you give us the courage and the wisdom and the tact and the savviness to raise up this next generation and not give them over to culture and TV and movies and magazines and their friends and public education and whatever else is trying to influence them with their sexual ethic? But God, may we as a church, uh, may we have a loud voice that is compelling and loving and clear and helpful that raises up another generation that does not have to suffer through the brokenness sexually that many of us in this room have had to go through. God, would you raise up a generation um, from this church of grandparents and parents and young adults and singles who see sex as not gross, not as a gift, or not as God, but as a gift from you. And God, may this series even just be a catalyst for greater healing so that Jesus could get the most amount of glory with these short lives that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.